0: I want you to imagine that you are reading a biography okay? and you're about two-thirds of the way through the book when you realise that the author has devoted the entire last third of the book to just one week of the subject's life. What would you think about that? I mean, what, what interpretations of that or conclusions of that would you draw probably that those last seven days or seven days are crucial for understanding why the person he's writing about is famous. It's probably crucial for understanding why this person is worth having a biography written about in the first place, if you're going to spend that much time on just one week of their life. And if you look, that is what we are dealing with in Mark's gospel. Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. He arrives. And from now on, Mark dedicates the last third of the book to just the last week of Jesus's life. And that tells you something. It tells you that you have got to understand his last week If you want to stand any chance of understanding the rest of his life. And if you look at it, all of the action in this last week centers in and around Jerusalem, or more precisely, the temple in Jerusalem and the leaders of that temple. And when I say that, it would be easy for us to sit there and think, okay. This is a building, the temple in Jerusalem, that was destroyed 2,000 years ago. And to think that has little to do... I mean, what's a building destroyed 2,000 years ago got to do with me? Except what this passage tells us is that it has everything to do with us. Because if you look at it, it tells you that there is someone who claims your allegiance there is someone who claims the right to examine your life to look inside you to see the state of your heart but there is also someone who opens up the possibility of a fruitfulness of life that no amount of busyness no amount of activity even religious activity can ever give you okay first point then the king who comes. Now, one of the striking uh, things about Mark's gospel so far is what is called the messianic secret. Jesus heals someone, and the person concerned or their family members are desperate to tell other people about what Jesus has done for them. And Jesus says, no, don't tell anyone about it. Or demons know who he is and they start crying out about that and Jesus forbids them to tell anyone else. Now a public relations guru will tell you that there is no such thing as bad publicity. But up until now, Jesus has refused all publicity. But now, all of that changes. He reaches the Mount of Olives on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he sends two disciples on a mission. Verse 2. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, you might think that that is uh, nothing more than the first century equivalent of getting an Uber. Okay, except this is one week before Passover. And just picture the scene, okay? There is this steady stream of pilgrims taking this road down to Jerusalem. And what the rabbis taught in the rabbinic writings is that all pilgrims, no exceptions, all pilgrims should enter the city on foot. No donkeys, no horses, no ubers, on foot. Which shouldn't be a problem for Jesus, should it? Jesus has been everywhere on foot up until now, except now he deliberately calls for a donkey. Then there's a way he obtains it. He tells the disciples that if anyone stops from taking it, they are to say, verse 3, the Lord has need of it. And that'll do the trick. Now, imagine you hear this sound, 2 a.m. in the morning, something like that, and you go outside and you find somebody trying to break into your car. Okay, if they said this to you, okay, would that do the trick? Oh, sure, the Lord has need of it. Yeah, okay, you can can take my car. That is not how we would respond. But in ancient times, kings had the power of requisition. They could commandeer a beast of burden, and, like a donkey, and say, I need that. And its owner would go, sure, because you're the king. Okay, then notice how Jesus describes the cult. It is 1, verse 2, on which no one has ever sat. And an animal that has not yet been broken in was considered sacred. It's why unbroken oxen, oxen that hadn't been used yet, were used to pull the carriage, the cart, carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And so here is Jesus taking a donkey rather than going on foot, setting himself apart from everyone else. And to get that donkey, he uses a king's prerogative. And he rides on this donkey, which is an unbroken animal, And as he does, verse 8, many spread their cloaks on the road as they give him the red carpet treatment. Why do they do it? Because none of the symbolism of this is lost on them, is it? You see, Mark, unlike the other gospel writers, Mark doesn't quote the prophet Zechariah, but you can almost guarantee that the crowd are thinking about the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, that is why they call out in the words of Psalm 118, which we read together as the, at the beginning as he rides in, verses 9 and 10. Hosanna, Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest and if you notice unlike every other time up until now Jesus doesn't stop them he has up until now But now they know he's the Messiah. They know he is the great king in David's line who has come to put everything right. And they are singing about it. And Jesus doesn't silence them. He is happy for this to be the first public declaration that he really is the king over every king. The one in the words of Zechariah who will rule from sea to sea and from the river the ends of the earth okay but look how he makes that statement on the back of a donkey not a war horse as the king coming humbly you just ponder how many modern leaders or modern would-be leaders would take this path the path of humility but as jc the bishop of liverpool wrote Jesus's life began in a manger, and it draws to its close on a donkey, because this is the king who combines power with humility. The king who, in Zechariah's words, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, because he is the prince of peace. Now, at least if you're British, okay. this last week has given ample opportunity to reflect on the example and influence of our leaders. And a nation's love for its queen, or if you're not British, for any of us, our enthusiasm for an elected leader who we are convinced this time is going to be it, or the cynicism we feel when they let us down again. Okay, all of that tells us that something inside of us longs for the leader who is not going to let us down, who is going to be it, for the perfect leader. The problem is, of course, that no, no earthly monarch or politician, however good, can ever be that leader. Instead, Mark is saying, yeah, but here he is. Look at him, look at him come. Look at the king over every king. High yet humble. All powerful yet peaceful. Tolerating no evil yet tender. Always right yet always righteous. And he does not need to seek re-election. And he's not subject to the whims of public opinion because he really is the king there's a problem with kings isn't there they demand your loyalty and if christ really is the king over every king we owe him our allegiance an allegiance that we don't divide with a political party you know we're going to side with Jesus, but also this political party or an elected politician or the media we consume or social commentators that we listen to. But it's him, mm-hmm. this king, who is shaping our characters and our loves and our ambitions and our priorities. The king who claims ownership over every part of our lives. Second point then, the king who seeks Now, if you look at their accounts, the way Matthew and Luke describe uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it really is triumphal. The city is agog, anticipation is at fever pitch. If the crowds weren't crying out, the stones would cry out. But if you look at Mark, that's not how Mark describes it. The way Mark tells it, it all ends in a bit of an anticlimax. Verse 11... And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. Now, there's an English nursery rhyme called the Grand Old Duke of York. Okay, and it goes, the Grand Old Duke of York, he had, he had 10,000 men. He marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again. It is a picture of a pointless military exercise. And if you look at it, Jesus does something similar, except in reverse. He comes down the hill from Bethany, enters the temple, has a look round. Nothing happens. It's getting dark. So he heads back up the hill again. Now, if you think about it, the gospel has been building up to this point. Who is this man? He's the Messiah. Where is he going? To Jerusalem. And he gets there and then he looks around and leaves. Is that it? Why does Mark present it like this? Because it's what doesn't happen that is so telling. Here is the king, come to his city. Here is God's son, come to his temple. And where are the leaders to welcome him? Mark tells us Jesus looked around, not like a tourist or even a pious pilgrim come to look at the great sights of the city, but as a king come to his house. And what does he see when he looks around? Does he see the great and the good all lined up to form a welcoming party for him, ready to pledge their allegiance? No. What he likely sees is the excrement left by the animals sold there and the pens that held them, and the now empty tables of the money changers. And he turns and leaves. But if you notice, this wasn't the only time Jesus went looking for something, verses 12 and 13. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree, and it's springtime, and the tree has leaves on it, which means it should also have the buds that in time will develop into figs. Okay, they're not figs yet, because it's not the season for figs, but those buds are edible, and Jesus is hoping to eat them. But while this tree has leaves, it has no buds. And so, verse fourteen, he said to it, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." And he curses it. And the next day, verse twenty, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Time for confession. Do ever, do any of you ever get hangry? <laughs> you're know, angry when you're hungry. Okay. Uh, more than one member of the slack family gets hangry. okay we can be we can be out on a family hike or something and one of us has skipped breakfast mentioning no names and they just start getting grumpy and complaining and typically it takes a while for the rest of us to sort of work out what is going on but when we when the penny finally drops, we go, oh, no, she's hangry. Everyone leaps into action. Quick, get some calories in her, sort of chocolate, you know, sugar. Give her something. And suddenly the mood is transformed. Okay, That'll sort it. Is that Jesus? Is Jesus just hangry? He hasn't, he hasn't had breakfast, so he's grumpy? Because at first glance, this doesn't reflect well on him, does it? The British atheist Bertrand Russell used this episode of him cursing the fig tree as one reason why he couldn't believe in Jesus. His character's suspect. I mean, who behaves like this? Because if he has the power to kill the tree, why not use that power to make the tree bear fruit? Why not use his power for life, not death? Well, a few years ago, uh, Sue and I made our first and only trip to California. I don't mean by that that we're never going to go again, but anyway. And um, before we went, some friends said to us, uh, "You've got, to, you've got. When you're there, you have got to go to In-N-Out Burgers because they're awesome. I mean, and you've got to have their animal fries. They are unbelievable." And we did. And let's just say it was an unbelievable experience. You know, it is one of those experiences that will live with us for years. But if In and Out Burgers are famous for their fries, okay, Mark is famous for his sandwiches. Okay, and for those of you who are in class this morning, okay, and if you weren't in class, I would really recommend you come to class as Tom teaches us how to. Uh, examine and interpret uh, God's word. And today we were looking at structure. And one of the ways that you can tell what is going on in Mark is his use of sandwiches. Because more than once, okay, you can probably count at least 12 times in the gospel, more than one, once, Mark gives us a sandwich. Okay, he places one episode in between two parts of another episode. And those two parts help explain what is going on in this central episode, and vice versa. And here, Mark divides the cursing of the fig tree into two, and he sandwiches between it the, the clearing out of the temple. And he does it so as to help us to see, what is Jesus doing in the temple? What is he doing? He's the king come seeking fruit. Third point then, the king who judges. Verses 15 and 16. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, if you were a pilgrim and you had uh, come up to worship, um, maybe from, you know, from miles away, down in the south of the uh, country or wherever, you probably didn't want to bring your animal for sacrifice with you. Okay, so to be able to buy one for sacrifice at the temple, that would be a convenience. And every man over 20 had to pay the annual temple tax okay it was a token of the ransom for their lives that God had redeemed them and this is a token of that and that tax went to support the temple and it paid the salaries of the priests and that tax this ransom payment if you like had to be paid with a Tyrian half shekel from Tyre Because the Tyrian half shekel was the closest thing available to the Hebrew shekel, which is commanded in the law. But where are you going to get a Tyrian shekel from if you're not from Tyre? Okay, you're not going to carry around a Tyrian half shekel in your pocket unless you come from there. So money changers helpfully provided that service. You give us your money and we'll give you a Tyrian half shekel. Now, in the past, the money changers and the sellers of animals had plied their trade along the approach roads to Jerusalem. But more recently, probably to um, help the pilgrims, supposedly, no doubt to take a cut of the profits, Caiaphas the high priest had invited those sellers and traders into the outer court of the temple. The court of the Gentiles. Okay, the, this is the one place, the court of the Gentiles, is the one place in the whole temple complex where non-Jews could come and worship. And Jesus comes back to the temple and he starts driving out the sellers of animals. Okay, but did you notice, it doesn't just cast out the sellers. He also drives out those who buy the animals. He is driving out pilgrims, and he overturns the tables of the money changers, who are there to help the people obey God's law. He okay, so what's he doing? He doesn't just drive out the buyers, sorry, the sellers, he drives out the buyers, he drives out pilgrims, and he drives out people who are helping the people obey God's law. Why do that? Three things he's doing. Firstly, he is restoring the court of the Gentiles. You see, interestingly, there was a popular expectation that when Messiah finally comes, he is going to cleanse the temple of foreigners. He's going to clear all the Gentiles, all the foreigners out, and he's going to make it pure for the Jewish people. Jesus comes, and he does exactly the reverse of that. He cleanses the temple for foreigners. He cleanses the temple for Gentiles. It's why he quotes Isaiah the prophet in verse 17 and says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And if you look at it, when when the Lord first said that through Isaiah the prophet, he is talking about the messianic age, when not just Jews, but those are Jewish people considered outsiders, like Gentiles or eunuchs. They are all going to be gathered to worship in God's house. And as Jesus clears the court, he is saying those days have come it has begun secondly as the fig tree sandwich tells us he's come seeking fruit and he's not found it and just as the fig tree had leaves so the temple is a hive of activity i mean all the outward trappings of religion are there aren't there sacrifices are being made the temple tax is being paid the tree has got leaves on its branches but instead of finding fruit jesus says verse 17 they have made it a den of robbers now that is not just a a condemnation of the profiteering that is going on he is quoting the prophet jeremiah and in jeremiah's day the leaders and the people were saying you know opposing Jeremiah and saying there's no way judgment is coming on Jerusalem. I mean there's no way Jerusalem is going to fall to her enemies because we've got the temple of the Lord. That's going to protect us. While all the time they're worshipping their idols, violent crime is going up, they are lying, truth lies dead on the streets and they're committing adultery and God says of them, they are no better than a company of thieves. Sure, they have the temple, but their lives were anything but consistent with the worship of the God whose temple it was. And so as Jesus purges the temple, he is condemning a religion of false appearances that shows signs of life on the outside, but is dead on the inside. A religion that has leaves, but no fruit. Let's apply that to ourselves. Okay, what about today? Because the truth is we can come to church, maybe even make sacrifices of time and money, but what can really have our heart is our idols. Those, those things other than God that we look to for our significance or our security, those things that really shape us those things that really drive our loves and our desires and our ambitions, like the hunger for the commendation of others or the desire for control or the endless pursuit of more. And those things can shape a person's character or the way they treat others more than the God they come to worship. The leaves are there, but the fruit is lacking. In one of his letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the risen Lord Jesus says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So as Jesus searches our hearts and minds, as he does that for us even this morning, what does he find? As he searches your heart, what does he find? Keep okay, it. thirdly, as he cleanses the temple, it is a foretaste of the judgment that is going to come on the temple and her leaders because what Jesus has just done, if you look at it, he has just stopped the flow of sacrificial animals, buyers and sellers. He's cast them both out. And he has overturned the financial system that pays for it all. So this isn't, this isn't Jesus restoring temple worship, cleaning it up so that it can work properly. It is Jesus foreshadowing its destruction. As he cursed the fig tree, so the withering of the tree of temple worship has begun. Now, if you're on the receiving end of a critique like that, okay, whether then or now, you can react against it can't you verse 18 and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching because when your idols are power or influence or you're standing in the eyes of others you will lash out at anything that threatens those idols And yet, how can Jesus threaten the end of the temple when the temple was the way for people to approach God? I mean, why are they bringing the sacrifices? So they can be forgiven for their sins. Why are they coming? So they can worship God. How can Jesus threaten the end of all of that? Last point then, the king who gives. Well, this is Holy Week, isn't it? This last week of Jesus' life tradition, it's called. And the triumphal entry happens on the Sunday. The cleansing of the temple happens on the Monday. But on the Friday, the plans of these leaders to destroy Jesus, they are going to bear fruit. And as Jesus clears the temple with a whip, as the other gospel writers tell us, as he clears the temple with a whip, So on Friday, a whip will be taken to his back. And as he drives buyers and sellers from the temple court, so the leaders will drive him out, not from just the temple, but from the city, from Jerusalem. And here, he comes humbly, riding a donkey. But his greatest act of humility comes as he humbles himself to death even death on a cross and as he curses the fig tree so at the cross he becomes a curse as he becomes the atoning sacrifice for sin that all of these animal sacrifices were only ever pointing to as he gives not a shekel for the ransom of his life but his life For the ransom of all of our lives. And at his death, that great curtain that divided the most holy place, the dwelling place of God, from the rest of the temple, that curtain was torn in two because the way to God has been opened. You see, Jesus said of himself that one greater than the temple is here the ultimate dwelling place of God among men. He's the one through whom our sins are forgiven. And the condemnation for our lack of fruit is placed upon him and removed from us because this king doesn't just seek. He gives and he saves. And when you see how he gave himself for you, You will give yourself for him. When you see what he has done for you, who he is and how he has humbled himself for you, he will have your loyalty, not out of fear, like an earthly monarch might, but out of love. And as a result, you will bear fruit. Seeing how he humbled himself for you, that will humble you. It will lay an axe to the root of your pride, seeing how he sacrificed all for you will fill your heart with love for him and for others and you will sacrifice for him and for others not to earn his love but because you know you are loved seeing that the prince of peace has made peace between you and god that will give you peace peace from all the endless striving of religion, trying to prove yourself to God and from the need to prove yourself to others. Instead, when you know that he already approves of you because of Christ, your heart will be filled with peace. And that will make you a person of peace because you won't need to get your significance from always winning the argument and putting other people down. Instead, you can build them up. And as Jesus says here, it won't just be your character that bears fruit, but your prayers. Okay, Peter sees the fig tree withered. He says, "Rabbi, look!" And Jesus replies, verse twenty-two: "Have faith in God, and you'll see mountains move. Things that seem impossible in your own strength." will become possible as you begin to trust in God's power rather than seek or trust in your own power and as you come trusting not in your right to be heard but in the righteousness of your king it'll mean you can approach his throne with boldness and with confidence in prayer That's why Jesus says in verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Because when he's your king, when your character is being shaped by his, what's that going to do for your wants? What's that going to do for your desires? What's that going to do for your ambitions? increasingly your desires are going to be in line with his desires that his kingdom would come and his will would be done and those are prayers he delights to answer okay but as jesus says the prayer that bears fruit doesn't just require faith it requires forgiveness verse 25 and whenever you stand praying forgive as yes, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have mountain moving faith, but if you don't have love, if you don't have the love that's patient and kind and that keeps no record of wrong, you're nothing. You're like a tree with leaves, but no fruit. But guys, our hearts can be filled with that love, and we can show that mercy as we see how Christ the King has loved us and been merciful to us who don't deserve it. Let's pray.